Now, Heavenly Father, we ask your help to understand these truths which are spiritually discerned by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are the author of these scriptures. You know our lives as well. You created us and you speak. And so help the spoken living word of God touch our spirits and make permanent eternal changes for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it took 14 years, but it's finally happening. The Lord Jesus gave his disciples a game plan after his death and resurrection. You know what it's called, the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then again in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you're my witnesses. Wait until the Spirit fills you. When the Spirit fills you, you're going to take my gospel to Jerusalem, to Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Well, Jerusalem was easy. And here, 14 years later, there's still no organized movement to reach the world with the gospel, but until today, until Acts chapter 13. Oh, there's been some, you know, isolated uh, individual uh, attempts, you know, like um, the, the Ethiopian eunuch going down to Africa and, and Philip going to um, Samaria and Peter going to Cornelius's. Uh, place, but but there's never been a church that's going to say, hey hey, we have a commission, we got to send out missionaries. Never, you're going to meet that church as we did last week, the church at Antioch, and so uh, it's a, just a beautiful story uh, now that we're taking a look at the most important, significant church that ever existed, in my humble opinion. Now. Uh, Jerusalem has sent to this church at Antioch, and I have a picture just to remind you of what we're talking about. So, you know, the church for, for a decade, the Christian church has been right here. And yet the Lord said, hey, the gospel's for the whole world. And so 14 years later, still there's n still no church effort to reach anybody until chapter 13, our text, right? So back in chapter 8, verse 4, there was a horrendous persecution here that's, that dispersed all the Jews all over the place. So God turned up the heat, and a lot of them ended up in Antioch. And some brave souls there, they're unnamed. Some Jewish Christians started preaching crazy things to crazy people like the Gentiles living in ancient time Las Vegas. All right, that's what it was kind of like there as I talked to you last time. And so it is the church of Antioch that is going to, to send organized missionaries for the next perhaps 20 years. They, this one church, will evangelize the entire Roman Empire. They will send a few men by one church. And the three missionary journeys are going to all... Uh, Commence and end 
with that church. They are the sending church and they are the receiving church. So Paul and the missionaries will go out and you will, you will, we are going to see three missionary journeys now start. So we have entered a new section in the book of Acts. From chapter 13 on, we've got the three missionary journeys, all right? And it's all about the sending church and the missionaries. And uh, in fact, I have a picture of that too, the three missionary journeys. Don't let that confuse you. All right, so it always starts at Antioch, right? And so today we start missionary journey one that just goes into goes sail to Cyprus and then up into this is modern day Turkey, central Turkey. Uh, Paul ends up getting stoned and left for dead at Derby, at Lystra, I should say. And then he goes on to Derby, and then they come back the same way. He goes back to the people who left him for dead. That's amazing. Then he comes back, and they go back to Antioch. That's missionary uh, trip one. And then missionary trip two, Antioch sends another team, the land way, and the Holy Spirit directs them up, doesn't allow them to go this way, and tells them to go this way to Troas. That's where they have the vision of a man saying, come and help us, and the gospel goes for the very first time to Europe. Right there, second missionary journey. We're on our way there. And then he comes down to Thessalonica, the book of Thessalonians, and he goes down to Athens, he goes to Corinth, and then across to Ephesus, and then down here, and then he sails back. After talking a little bit at Jerusalem, he goes back to the mother sending church at Antioch. And then the third one as well, just to encourage the churches again. Uh, it's, a, it's a total trip of... Uh, Within 20 years, about 10,000 miles, 10 to 15,000 miles, mostly of walking and also sea, sea miles as well. But what's amazing to me, it's all one church. One church did that, not two churches. One Christian church, the very first church that looked kind of like a modern day church. When you think of church, you may think of a few scattered Jews in there, you know, but mostly Gentiles, right? A church that looked very much like ours. A few Jews and a lot of Gentiles. That's what they did. A few men. No computers, no cars. No iPads, no iPhones, no Blackberries, no Blueberries, no Strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> just so, this is just amazing. So, okay, thank you for the map. Now, last we heard, what did we hear? The church in Antioch had two teachers, Barnabas and Saul. They taught for one year. Then a prophet said, uh, let them know, heads up, a famine is coming. They wanted to send a love offering to the brothers in Jerusalem, the church, uh, the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And so Barnabas and Saul took the love offering. They went to Jerusalem. They left the love offering, but picked up Barnabas's cousin, John Mark. And John Mark is famous because he wrote Mark. So they pick up little cousin. He's a little young. He's probably not more than 20. They pick him up, and they bring him back to the church at Antioch. So now Barnabas and Paul have returned. The church is on fire there. They're sensing we got to do something. We've got a great big world. There are no churches. Nobody knows Christ in that whole region, the whole Roman Empire. It's us and nobody else. What are we going to do? Verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch, 
There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, another way to say that is Simon, called Niger, it's a Latin uh, for black, that's what it means, uh, he's probably an African, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, that's Libya, a Manaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. The Tetrarch there is Antipas, the one who killed John the Baptist, the one who mocked Jesus at the trial. And Saul. Saul's getting his name finally changed to Paul in a few verses, and then it'll never be Saul again. Now, while they were worshiping the Lord there at that church and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed some more, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. All right, so we're going to pause there. Now, Barnabas and Saul return with a kind of a tag along John Mark, and the Holy Spirit has something big for them to do. And uh, it, it, it is just an incredible thought of what is waiting in store for these three men. They are going to be the first missionaries ever sent by a church. And so um, the important uh, church here that we see is doing an important work. And uh, the chapter divides quite nicely. We're going to learn more about, one, the ministers of the church. The Holy Spirit wants you to meet them. They had five leaders. This is who they were. And this is how they did ministry. And just a few verses, but there's a lot in there. And then secondly, that's verses one through three. And then secondly, we're going to see the mission field. So we're going to see the kinds of things that happen, the spiritual conflict, like this dramatic encounter on Cyprus. So these three guys that we're talking about are going to be sent by the church off, and they first stop at Cyprus, and there's a real dramatic power struggle there that we look forward to. That's verses 4 through 12. And then the rest of the chapter, which we won't get to today, but we'll look at last week, is a sample of the message. So if you're t taking notes, it's ministers, minister, mission, and message. Uh, we're going to hear what the exact message was on the mission field. What, what was the gospel about? Well, you're going to get a big, pretty um, uh, detailed uh, portion of the scripture that showed what, what the gospel was about, what the content of the words. And so we'll take a look at that. But for now, a look at the ministers of this fascinating church that turned the world upside down. In fact, when a few of the missionaries in, in missionary journey number three, get hauled in front of a pro-council. They want to kill them. And the charge is, these men have turned the world upside down. Well, they're just a few men, but guess who sent them? Antioch. Every, anything you see, everything you see in the New Testament, every page you turn, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Thessalonians, Guess who sent the men there? That one church. So don't forget about the Antiochans. That's what they're called, by the way. I thought that was funny that they're called that, but that's what they're called, all right? I didn't make that up. The Antiochans. <laughs> Sounds like they should be speaking with a southern accent, but... All right, so uh, we knew in the founding church of Antioch, we knew that there was Paul and Barnabas because they had in the coming together of that church, been teaching them for one year. But now we find out that they're actually grown 
And there are five leaders that uh, we want to be introduced to. Barnabas, Simon, Niger, Lucius of Libya, and Manaean, who grew up with Herod, of all people. And last on the list, but soon to be first in every list, Paul, the apostle. But he's currently still Saul for about five more verses. So, um, all Jewish Christian men, those five leaders, they're all Jews racially, but they, they're all, uh, all except Manaean. Manaean grew up in the Holy Land with Herod, right? Everybody else, they grew up in foreign territories and they're all Greek speakers. They've all been educated in Greek ways. They're Jews, but they're a little bit wider in their sympathies and broader in their thinking than Holy Land Hebrews, all right? So they're perfect to go to a church of all Goyim, right? Goy is Gentile. I know <laughs> we talked about this before. That's why some of you are laughing. Uh, Goy is singular. Goyim is plural, all right? And so perfect, guys, why is this perfect? None of them know anything about the Bible. And do you know the Jews call their scriptures the Bible? Did you know that? They don't call it the Old Testament. They call it, <laughs> they call it the Bible, it's funny. I, I like that they call it the Bible, because guess what? It is. <laughs> Here are five men who were raised on the Bible. None of the goyim know anything about it. They don't know anything. They don't know the creation account. They don't know about Noah. They don't know. They need to know the judgment and holiness of God, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the ex and extermination of seven nations that God struggled with for 400 years and then had to annihilate them as a picture of the second coming of Christ and Armageddon and the day of the Lord. They have to know all these things. They have to know the Psalms. They have to know how to worship God. They have to know the prophecies. In fact, if you only had an Old Testament, you could become a Christian. You really could. You really could. There's enough about Jesus in the Old Testament and also the whole justification through faith alone. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham got right with God because he had faith, right? Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. That's a quote. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. The just... Those who are justified means the forgiven, the pardoned, shall live by faith. Habakkuk. That's not in the New Testament, right? I mean, that's pretty easy to know by just saying Habakkuk, right? <laughs> Habakkuk, yeah, no. Noah found grace. Grace. It's always been about grace. It's always been about faith plus nothing, always and forever. And so... These five Jews are pouring their lives into the Goyim church, the Antioch church. Or boy, they got some really good guys there. Now, why? Uh, the, why does the Bible say uh, they were prophets and teachers? Well, uh, a prophet, biblically speaking, was one who spoke for God. Now, we think of it as foretelling, but the, the typical biblical definition of a prophet is forth. Telling. In other words, when you speak like Jonah, Jonah, repent. This is what God has to say. He's forth telling, right? 
uh, maybe even John the Baptist's approach. He's proclaiming. When you proclaim the gospel, you are biblically, although we don't think of it this way, prophesying. We always think prophesying of the future, but it is not technically correct. Uh, it involves that. It can be. Agabus stands up and says, hey, there's going to be a big, serious famine. Heads up. Yeah, so it involves that, but it isn't always that. So these men were prophets, and they were teachers, and one who brings explanation, understanding, and application to God's word for God's people. And now these gifts overlap, and people have multiple gifts, and uh, every Christian has one for sure or more. Now, um, why does the Holy Spirit want you to know about these men who were proclaiming the truth and teaching uh, the word of God? I'll answer that for you. Um, that's because God knows what makes a church healthy, strong, productive, and protected. Wherever there's a work of God, there will be a leader, period. If you want to talk about early church and pattern, you will always find a leader. Show me one work of God where there's no pastor, elder, teacher, uh, prophet, evangelism, uh, evangelist, rather. Uh, just show me one. You will, you'll not be able to, even though there's a move to say, hey, let's disperse about old school Christianity. Don't need leaders. We're all equal. Let's just get together, talk about what, 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 how did you see that text? Let's all just get together in our homes and just, who needs leaders? Who needs authority? Who needs submission to them? Paul, one of those teachers, would write, Christ himself gave to the church apostles, some to be prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that God's people grow into completely mature Christians, not babies, quoting, not babies in their faith, blown here and there by every new teaching that comes along and comes uh, by through deceptive false teachers. So God supplies Antioch Church with five pastors, if you want to call them that, leaders. You can interchange some of these words in the Greek to equip them to live the Christian life, but also to protect them. That was the point. So that they're not blown here and blown there. Hey, did you hear this? Uh, about, for example, somebody came up to me and said, hey, I'm on a, this business trip. I meet this friend. He's a Christian. We, get, we become friends. He starts talking to me in strange ways, though. He starts saying, hey, um, God wants us to be rich, man. Uh, and, let, and he showed me some scriptures. And, and then he took me to meet his pastor. And his pastor just was dressed to the nines just said, hey, man, God wants to make us rich and prosper us. And, and he just spoke blessing and prosperity over us. And I was so tempted. And then I heard your voice in the back of my head just saying, hey, men who teach you that godliness or Christian life is a means to financial gain, they have warped and twisted minds and have been robbed of the truth. That's not my, you know why I said it? Because it's in the word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. So he comes to me and he says, I was protected. I could hear your voice say, watch out for the prosperity preaching thing. And so instead of going, ah, I went, ah, excuse me, not for me. 
protected because he has a teacher. God wants his people to have teachers. You know, uh, elders, elders. Uh, the word just means mature or old guy, all right? <laughs> I like it right now because every minute I'm fulfilling that passage uh, better and better. Um, uh, old in the sense of mature and also overseeing pastors, the word for shepherding and feeding, teachers, uh, laying out doctrine, evangelists, that special proclaiming gift and, and that, that ability with the lost, uh, missionaries and, and, and prophesying or speaking or proclaiming. You know, we don't use the terms apostle or prophets very much anymore. It seems that those offices have um, been fulfilled in the founding of the church, but the function of apostle is, is fulfilled with the missionary, and the function of the prophet is fulfilled uh, by pastors who are proclaiming and evangelists and workers, Christian workers, and you who proclaim the gospel. When you proclaim the gospel, you're prophesying. You are in prophet mode. Uh, however that sounds. It just doesn't sound right today, but it's the way it is. So uh, interestingly, people, before we move on, scholars have said the gifts, pastor, uh, prophet, teacher, evangelist, uh, missionary, is God's ideal pastoral team. That there's something well-balanced and complementary about having a bunch of men who have strengths in those areas that were just listed. And I thought about that in terms of our church, and I, and I just thought about, uh, I thought about Nathan and Josh. They're elders. They're just, they, they oversee. They're always looking out. They have maturity and integrity they, 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 they fit that bill. And, and you've got Adam, Pastor Adam. He's a teacher. He's one of those apologetic guys uh, that, that can defend the faith, line upon line, precept about precept. I don't know if you've heard him preach. He's a teacher. And then Pastor Jim, do I even need to say? <laughs> He's a prophet in the sense of proclaiming. He's a proclaimer. He's a preacher boy. He's an, he, he's an evangelist. He's, give him a box and turn him loose and, and put on your seatbelt. Amen? Right? And me, I, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. I'm the feeder. I'm a nurturer. I'm the watch out. I'm the papa of the church. I'm, that's who I am there. And it's a very nice balance there. And these guys have the same thing. Barnabas. Let's go down their list real quick. Barnabas is, I told you about him. His, na his name was Joseph, but then everybody around him said, man, you encourage us. All you do is comfort and encourage everybody. You always see the positive. Let's call you Barney. It means Mr. Comforter, Mr. Encourager, right? Every time you see the guy, he's helping. When everybody's afraid of Saul, because they should have been. He was a, a Christian killer. And then suddenly he comes in and says, hey, I've seen the light, brothers. Everybody went, of course you did. <laughs> you know, and they turned to run. It was Barnabas who said, hey, man, come here, come here, come here. Hey, guys, Peter, James, John, come here. 
dude, this guy is the bomb, all right? He, sorry, <laughs> he just led, he, they're, they're trying to kill him for his testimony, man. He's one of us. He got saved. The Lord appeared to him. Hey, Barnabas, if you say so, yeah. John Mark, John Mark cut out on them. Of course, John Mark is his cousin, but they, he cut out on the mission. Paul said, that's the last time you do that. You're not coming. And, and, and Barnabas says, oh, come on, man. You know, see, he's mercy, all right? So every church needs a mercy, soft-hearted people first, but then you've got the apostle Paul, whose task, he's going to evangelize the entire Roman Empire single-handedly just about, Right? <laughs> He's going to write 13 books in the New Testament. He doesn't have time to be a people person. He really doesn't. He really doesn't. He's got to write the book of Romans. John Mark, please, you're bugging me. Go away. You know, right? But if you've got Barnabas over here going, John Mark, come here, baby. You know, so, I know you went home to mommy, but we still love you. Right? But Paul doesn't have that because he doesn't need to have it. Because Barney's got it, right? It doesn't mean Paul gets to be rude, right? But it does mean we all have our special kind of bents and our strengths and our weaknesses, and we're supposed to be complementing one another. That's the idea here in the body with the hand and the foot and the eyes and the nose and the whole bit there. Uh, so you have Paul and Barnabas. You've got Simon. Is this, everybody's saying in the books I'm reading, so this is Simon, this is Simon of Cyrene. This is the guy who carried the cross. So, you know, commentators say, you know what? He represents a man who's been to Calvary. He's seen the cross. He's, he's, he represents the leader's sacrifice. There's sacrifice involved when you want to lead. Sacrifice of your family and your time and money. These are things that happen. He carried the cross and then all other burdens were heavy. That's the kind of guy you want around, for sure. And then you've got um, Lucius. Lucius, nobody knows anything about except Paul mentions him at the end and says, hey, he's a beloved brother at the end. So people say he represents just that loyal, stick to it all the way, dependable all the way through to the end. I, I don't know about you. I've been around uh, 35 years as a Christian, a lot of friends that I used to know are not walking with the Lord at all. Lucis, not one of those guys. Lucis, like, done. I'm, I'm going the whole way. He's a good guy to have around, right? And then finally, Manaean. Manaean is the word used brought up with Herod is a word that can mean foster brother, or it's an idea that. Herod and Manaean both come from royal families, and they were raised at court, on, at court there. And that he represents a leader who has distinct calling from God. There's no way. I mean, they were raised the same way. One turns into a murderer, and one turns into a missionary, a minister, right? One turns into a believer, one turns into a beast, Right? It's the hand of God that you can look back and you can look at a leader and say, wow, sovereign move of God there. You know, one minute he's doing X, Y, and Z, and the next second he's like preaching the gospel. How did that happen? Everybody who leads ought to have 
some sort of work of God that, that, that shows, sets them apart, that shows the sovereign calling and separation of God in their heart and life. It doesn't need to be like drama city, but there needs to be like, wow, we, we get it. God's hand is, is on that guy for a special reason. And so they have that. So these were their leaders, and here's how they were going about doing ministry when two of them got called out. The whole church was involved in this. One day, your text says, as these guys, and the whole church was worshiping, uh, ministering to the Lord, it says in the original. They were fasting, and the Holy Spirit speaks, probably through one of the prophets, or an inner witness. Dedicate Barnabas and Saul and Paul for a special job I have for them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them, not to appoint them, they were already appointed, but to acknowledge what God had already done. That's what we like to do here. That's a Calvary Chapel thing. We copy that. We don't go looking around and asking people we don't know to do stuff. We look around for who's already doing the stuff that we need help with. We look around for already called people we, we don't all get around and start voting on people. We just say, God, who, who have you raised up? Show us who they are. And, and that's exactly what they laid the hands on, saying, hey, we acknowledge God has called you and set you apart, and you're already doing the very thing that we are laying our hands. And actually, the laying on the hands before they go off, kind of identifying them. You know, you'd lay your hand on the offering that you brought to the temple before it was slaughtered on your behalf. You put your hands on the animal and you confess your sins onto the head of that innocent, big, brown-eyed cow or whatever it was, bull or lamb. And then they'd slit the throat with your hands still on it because that identifies you, right? So what is the church saying? They're us. We're sending. We can't go. We got jobs in Las Vegas. All right? <laughs> they all had kosher jobs in Las Vegas, all right? But they were the sending church, and they identified with them. Uh, just a few things before we go to Cyprus, if we have time to go to Cyprus, I hope we do. You all have your passports? Just ignore me. I'm crazy this morning. <laughs> They're ministering to the Lord in the Greek. They're not ministering for the Lord. So they're, they're having a worship service, and the way the scripture puts it is they're ministering to the Lord. It's the same way of talking about priests who did the job in the temple with the sacrifices and worked there at the altar. What does that mean? That we are sort of seen as priests, Old Testament priests, yielding our lives as living sacrifices. So it's so, listen to this, catch this, it's life-changing. Singing, it's so much more than a time of singing. I had somebody say to me, you know, they don't go to church anymore, you don't know who I'm talking about anyway. Uh, somebody came late, they always come late because we're, we're not good at singing, our whole family, so we don't come. It's not <laughs> about the singing, it's about you're ministering to the Lord. You're opening your heart. You're laying your life down. You're surrendering things. You're confessing sins. You're listening. You're obeying. You're adoring. You're loving. You're, you're coming in. You're making yourself open. And 
oh man, worship. Worship is worship. It's ministering to him, serving God, and nothing happens before you do that. So I love the first step. If you want to change the world, turn it upside down. You, you give yourself over to him. That's just wonderful. Fasting's involved. Uh, they sense an urgency. They got these five leaders. They got an explosive church. They look out on the map, and they say, no one knows the whole world. There's no one other Christian church but us. It's a big world. How do we start? Who do we send? Where do we get the funds? What are we going to do? We could go anywhere and be in God's will, just about since the whole world is needy. So God, instead of just praying and worshiping, we're going to put an edge to our prayers because this is time of seriousness. We want to know. We're going to start fasting. Fasting is for serious things. When you're in a serious situation, it, 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 it means, you know, there's something more important going on here than my breakfast sandwich. There's something more important than lunch. There's just something more than, yeah, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. There's something more important, God. Let me just, instead, I'm going to just stop at the church for an hour. Instead of going to Burger King, I'm going to think about the other king. <laughs> Jesus, thank you. Thank you. I got one applause there. To stop in the church and open my heart, open the scriptures instead of opening the wrapper. You're opening the Bible and you're seeing God. This is a serious time. Should we go left? Should we go right? Should I say yes? Should I say no? Is she the one? Is he the one? That's kind of important. Amen? Let me tell you what fasting is not. I had the opportunity in Calvary Chapel, Petaluma. Somebody had paid to go to Israel and then the seven churches of Asia, which are all in modern-day Turkey. He couldn't go at the last second. He said, the Lord put it on my heart to gift the trip to you, Ross. I said, I'm a full, I have a full-time job. I'm a teacher at the vocational college in the East Bay. I teach every day. I teach a full load. It's a two-week trip. It's impossible. Well, why don't you go talk to somebody and see if you can make it happen? So I'm driving to work on a Monday. And I'm thinking the whole way, praying the whole way to Concord. God, I'm going to fast the whole week. Then I'm going to go over to Concord to the, the corporate office and talk to Doug Cole. And I just labored in prayer. Oh, I want to go, oh, this and that. I'm going that. I, and I already started fasting. I'm not going to eat for five days. I want to go so bad. I get out of the car. I go into the foyer. I've got my briefcase. I'm in the foyer this Monday morning. The CEO, Doug Cole, is standing right there in the foyer. Now, I'm like, oh, what are you doing here? I, I was just thinking of you. Uh, I was thinking of making an appointment to see you on Friday over at the office. He goes, oh, I got business over here today. So I came over here. What's up? I go, uh, no, I gotta, uh, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you. We're standing in the foyer. People are walking by with their Starbucks, you know. I'll talk to you on Friday. Hey, man, come on. I'm right here. Talk to me. Well, I got an opportunity to go on a study trip to Israel and the seven churches of Asia, and it would just be life-changing. He goes, oh, man, sounds like it. 
I said, but I would need two weeks off. He goes, oh, we're going to make it happen. I go, we do? <laughs> we're going to make it happen? And, and, and I go, but Doug, I, I'd have to be paid. I'd still have to be paid. Yeah, are you kidding me? How often do you get a trip to go to Israel and to Turkey and to, for two weeks, man, we're going to make it happen. We do. <laughs> we do. Yeah, we'll make it happen. He's turning around going, but, yeah. And he goes, yeah, no problem. Just talk to my secretary. Talk to my secretary. And he's walking away. The Lord says to me, do not fast for my favor because you already have it. Do not fast for gifts that I like to give. You're not going to manipulate me into making this happen. And oh, thank God you gave up five days of food so that you could go to Israel. I wanted you to go to Israel. You didn't have to earn it by starving yourself. Crazy Ross. <laughs> he didn't call me crazy, but though sometimes I think he has. In the... <laughs> Did you get that? Serious things. Serious things. We have to go to Cyprus, right? Okay, it's going to be a quick trip, so buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> the two of them, verse 4, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, that's the port, and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, that's the port on Crete, Cyprus, rather, my bad. They proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. So John Mark was with them as their helper, not for long. Verse 6. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, of course, <laughs> son of salvation or son of Jesus, who was an attendant for the governor or proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the governor from the faith. And then Saul, who's also called Paul, there, now you will never hear the word Saul again. All right? Interesting to me that this is the exchange that gets him his name, Paul. <laughs> okay, then Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. Now, you know, you know that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? <laughs> that wasn't in there. <laughs> Just call him out as a child of Satan. <laughs> All right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now, the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind, and for a time, you'll be unable to see the light of the sun, immediately mist and darkness. By the way, Luke is a physician, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. Mist and darkness are both medical words here. Very interesting. So something's going on medically with him, all right? Mist and darkness come over him. He gropes around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Verse 12, uh, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. 
Yeah, some things are no-brainers, you know, when you, when you see something like that in front of you, you're like, okay, I believe. <laughs> and so we've seen uh, a little bit about the men and saw how they do church and how they put God first and the Holy Spirit is leading. Now we get to see an example of what happens on the mission field. And one word is going to sum up the entire rest of the book of Acts. From Acts chapter 13 on, we're in the journeys. Journey one, journey two, journey three, and then Paul's journey to Rome, right? One word will sum up, I guess it's 11,150 miles, 40 stops mentioned in these remaining chapters in the book of Acts, 16 chapters to go. One word sums it all up, conflict. Jesus put it this way. This is my verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So the light, Jesus is, calls himself in John chapter 8, verse 12, the light of the world. He stepped down into darkness. The darkness wasn't very appreciative. All right, so they tried to snuff his light out. Rather than having their candle lit, by the Holy Spirit coming in to give new life and new birth and new understanding and new truth. They said, we don't want that and snuffed his light out. And then our light as well. He says, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men. And we do. They don't always appreciate. Some of them do, but a lot of them do not. So let the clash begin. And here we see a little bit of that light and the resistance of the darkness. Uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. I got a, a map here. I love using maps. The first missionary journey. 15 miles to port. From port, about 100 miles to sea. The first stop, Salamis, Salamis, whatever. <laughs> uh, they go to the synagogue there first. Why reinvent the wheel? You've got a whole room filled of people who know all about Moses and creation and the prophecies. So they always go throughout Acts, always start with the Jews, because you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You've got things going on. They already know, right? So much. Until they got thrown out. And then they go to the Gentiles as well. There's 100 miles here as well. To the other. Paphos is the seat of the Roman government, and that's where they meet the governor, Sergius Paulus. Now, doesn't his name just sound important? And so <laughs> he really does. And so this is where the drama begins. And uh, I love how they describe the governor. He was an intelligent man. And then the same clause. Because he's sent to hear the word of God. That's how the Bible defines smart. <laughs> he gets word, hey, there's men preaching in the the synagogues around town about this miracle-working God. In fact, there are signs and wonders happening. You know, a couple guys got healed and this and that. He goes, hey, send them my way. I want to hear this. It's a word from heaven. It's a word from God. I'm all ears because he's a man of understanding. So he sends uh, for them a great scene uh, before us. You've got willing Christian missionaries a life-changing gospel, and an eager seeker, a man of influence. I guess the guy's eyes were really big, like, oh, wouldn't this be a big catch? You know, the governor of the entire island of Cyprus. What's missing? The devil. 
that's who's missing. God wants to save Sergius. The devil wants to condemn him. God has his men working, and the devil has his men working. Uh, God has his plan to save, and the devil has his plan to destroy. John 10.10, I've come to give them life and that they would have it more abundantly, but the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And so, enter one of Sergius Paul's staffers. Okay, I guess he's like, the he heads up the psychic hotline, all right? So he's kind of the counsel, you know, can you kind of, the philosopher, ma- magician, kind of spiritual voodoo guy, all right? So he's his right-hand man, and um, Alimus hears the preachers are coming, and so this could end his time and his position out there on the Garden Island that's called kind of the ancient Maui or the Bahamas. That's kind of what it was like there. And Alimus had it made. He had no rivals. You know, the devil gives him power. He's an angel of light. He was doing good things. And... Um, but he's going to oppose. Now the dialogue begins, and we're not told what the faker does to attempt to dissuade Sergius, only that uh, he opposed them as they were speaking, and he tried to turn the governor from faith. So I kind of picture it. Paul and Barnabas are on this side. They're out on the Lanai. It's a beautiful place. And there are drinks there. It's little coffees, exotic teas. And on the other side is Sergio, Sergius is in the middle, Sergio. And then on the other side is prophet man, who the Bible calls a false prophet. So what did he say? He denounced their credibility. He scoffed at their claims. He mocked and rolled his eyes. He started twisting truth, distorting the facts, playing on doubts and uncertainties and fears, introducing controversies. And if there was a race issue in the day, you better believe he played the race card, right? And then right when, when, when Sergius is getting it, oh, he spills a whole pitcher of tea all over the place. Oh, whoops, my bad. You know, and then the thoughts are all distracted. Sergio, does this sound like a god of love? Eternal fire? Excuse me, gentlemen, did I hear the word eternal used there? Fire? Oh, Sergius. What about your mother and your father? Your sister, they're nice people. Did you hear what they said? Oh, yeah, Sergio, Sergius. I want to call him Sergio for some reason. What about Zeus and Aphrodite? Hey, dude, what about the party on Friday night, the toga party? Hello? You're going to have to, if you're listening, did you hear what they said about holiness and morality? You're going to have to change your whole life. You're going to have to be watching what you drink. You're going to have to be watching your sexuality, man. You want that? Did you hear it's going to be at the party? Right? You know, somebody's laughing real hard because they, they've heard that very line. <laughs> so Sergius' head is going back and forth, looking like this. And he's like, ready to believe. And then Sergius, and then uh, Alimus over here. Oh, 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 oh. And then Paul's blood pressure is rising. And then full of the Holy Spirit. Ah. Full of the Holy Spirit, he says, calls him out. You, sir, are not son of Jesus. 
Bar Jesus, Hebrew, son of. You are not son of Jesus. You know who you are? You're son of the devil. You're son of the devil. Are you going to live your whole life doing things like this? Your whole entire life? You know what's going to happen? What happened to me? The same sort of judgment. And I hope you turn from it like I did. But from now on, for a season, you're not going to be able to see the light of day. And maybe in your blindness, you'll be able to see the light like I did kind of thing. And boom. Oh, oh somebody, somebody lead me. I'm blind. You know, I want my mommy. Sorry. I just, I just appreciate that whole scene. Now, was he too harsh? No. Well, I don't think so, because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, here's what David Guzik says about it. If you want to commit spiritual suicide, that's your own business. But how dare you bring others down with you? If you want to give up on the things of God and grow bitter in your heart against him, that's your own choice. But it is a heavy and serious sin to draw anyone else away with you, either with your words or your example. So don't, don't get in the way of God and a person who's seeking him in truth. Just don't get in the way. You're getting a better luck with a she-bear robbed of her cubs than God trying to get to somebody and you in the way stumbling them because God just take you out. He'll just take you out. That's the way it is. Now or later, God has his will. What did, uh, what did Sergius see when he looked up he looked up, he saw a refreshing, clean, confident boldness that comes from being right with God and on the side of truth. He saw someone with a backbone who wasn't afraid to call out somebody for their evil ways. He saw someone with the guts to speak the truth. He saw the power of the genuine article against the weakness of the counterfeit. He saw all of this and he said, I believe. No compromise. You know, he didn't say, you know, we're not here to judge, Brother Alimus. Uh, we're all on our spiritual journeys, and it's all about relationship. And our Father's love is great enough to embrace the Son of salvation. And who are we to make a judgment call? He didn't do any of that. He said, your soul, sir, is on the line, and this guy's a liar. And then God backed that up with some powerful evidence. Because what's the most important thing here? That Sergius finds the Lord, which he does. And records indicate that his whole family came as well. Let's pray together.